Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're speaking today with Roman Krisnarek, who is an author, um, a public philosopher. He's based in the UK. He writes about power of ideas to change society. Um, although he has been prolific in his work, um, including uh, setting up the world's first empathy museum, um, we will focus this conversation on his recent work, his recent book called The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World. Um, and I, I note that uh, the edge from you too is, is quoted as saying, the book our children's children will thank us for reading. And um, yeah, personally, if the edge is, is, is behind something, I'm gonna be interested. So that's quite cool. Welcome, Roman. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. I was so excited to come across this. Um, it kind of came at me tangentially. Um, but, you know, the moment I saw that, uh, you know, the, the first words in the title, The Good Ancestor, it resonated because this is something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. Uh, you know, how do we get from short-term thinking to multi-generational thinking? And as you lay out in the book, um, more and more people are sort of refocusing on this as part of the issue. The Designers of Paradise podcast series that this is a part of looks at regenerative culture and it looks at regenerative land practices, often through the lens of agriculture itself. But really the, the regenerative movement or the, or the regenerative um, solution, as, as, as it were, that, that's being looked at and, and proliferated now increasingly it has no validity if it cannot work for the long term. And so as, as, as you outlined in the book, there is, there's kind of a, you know, one of these crisis opportunity points um, that, that we've arrived at. And so many of, while so many of the problems that seem to be piling up on us can be traced back to very short-term thinking. And even here in Europe where I live now and, and where you live, um, although a lot of our audience is in North America, we hear this the critique of short-termism 
coming up more and more frequently in, in many, many different topics that are being discussed. So um, why don't you take us through how you decided that this was the topic for this particular work? Right. So the reason I got interested in this topic of how do we really shift from a short-term to long-term culture was because I partly saw what I think of as a conceptual emergency that you have, I could pick up a newspaper and there were people, whether they're from public health or in the world of sustainability or in political social change and other areas all saying, we've got too much short-termism. We need more long-term thinking. Uh, we need long-term thinking, whether it's to deal with the next um, pandemic, which is on the horizon. We needed to deal with the climate crisis and biodiversity loss. We needed to deal with threats from new technologies or to deal with racial injustice that gets passed on from generation to generation. So lots of people talking about too much short-termism, too much addiction to phones and 24-7 media and short-term election cycles. And we need more long-term thinking. That's what I kept hearing around, but nowhere did I really see people saying, well, what actually is long-term thinking? Taking apart that idea, are there different kinds of long-term thinking? Is it always even good for us? So I set out in this book, The Good Ancestor, to try and really explore the meaning of long-term thinking and consider, well, how might we then take it from theory into practice to deal with these great challenges of our age, particularly around the global ecological crisis? So one of the one of the points that or one of the, the mechanisms that you used in um, explaining the kind of duality in, in the human potential for, for thinking um, that struck me as, as as creative and really accessible was this idea that we have both a marshmallow brain and an acorn <laughs> brain. Um, <laughs> take us through that a little bit. Yes, the marshmallow and the acorn. I mean, I think we've got this cultural narrative that we are short-term creatures. This is what we tend to read in the newspaper, that we are driven by immediate rewards and instant gratification and always pressing the buy now button. And of course, that's true to a large extent. I think of that part of the, the drivers of the human brain as the marshmallow brain, named after the famous 1960s psychology experiment, the marshmallow test, where kids as you probably know, had a marshmallow placed in front of them. And if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow. And the majority of kids couldn't resist. And that's our short-term neural wiring in action. We share it with other mammals, with rats going, and it's an 80 million year old part of the brain. But alongside the marshmallow brain, we also have what I call the acorn brain. And that is the part of our neural anatomy which focuses on long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. And it's actually really well-developed well in human beings compared to most other animals. It's a new part of the brain, just a couple of million years old. It lives uh, above your eyes at the front of your head in a part called the frontal lobe, particularly a, a part, if you want to know, called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. But if you think about it, okay, lots of other animals and creatures do plan a bit. So a chimpanzee, will take a stick from a tree, strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke into a termite hole. But the chimpanzee will never make a dozen of these tools and set them aside for next week. But that's exactly what a human being will do. We are planners extraordinaire. We plan for our, you know, save money for our children's educations or write song lists for our own funerals. 
And this is the ACORN brain in action. It's the ACORN brain which enabled us to build the Great Wall of China or voyage into space to embark on projects years, decades, even centuries in terms of their time horizons. And this is good news on some level that, you know, of course, there's always a struggle going on between the marshmallow and the acorn. You know, do we party today or save for our pensions for tomorrow? Do we upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? But if we're really serious about creating a regenerative culture, regenerative economics, regenerative politics, the whole realm, we need to start learning to switch on that acorn part of our brains and put it to good use. Would you say that the, the marshmallow is kind of a dopamine triggered uh, effect? Well, certainly some of the research shows that dopamine is part of the, the chemical reactive cycle that drives the short termism uh, of the brain. But there's other things going on too. There's also um, fear, you know, fight or flight mechanisms in operation and so on. So these are you know, very deeply embedded in us. But what we know is that, for example, our technologies are designed to bring out the marshmallow side of us to, to pulse that or push that dopamine button. You know, that's how our phones work, getting us to swipe and click um, and scroll all the time. Or think of the buy now button. You know, it's, it's preying on our desire for instant gratification, immediate rewards, a quick hit. You know, just imagine a world where you didn't have a buy now button, you had a buy later button. You go to press uh, buy now and then a drop down menu comes and there's an option to buy now, but also buy in a week or buy in a month, buy in a year or borrow from a friend. And you press buy in a year, you'll get an email in a year's time uh, asking you whether you really want to buy that second yoga mat. Um, So we're competing against these technologies that are building on um, the marshmallow brain and some of those dopamine effects, definitely. And one of the one of the other points I think I think that you made so well too in terms of long term um, is that we're not just talking about our kids, you know. We're not just even talking about our grandchildren. Like we need to we need to think probably and plan and design and act for not even just the kind of proverbial seventh generation, but in the case of things like well. I mean, a, a, an extreme case is, is an extreme and all too common case is uh, nuclear waste storage. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, in the corporate sphere, when they talk about long termism, they're talking three or five years ahead. But I absolutely believe we need to be thinking at the very least beyond our own lifetimes. I think it was a minimum threshold for long term thinking to be 100 years, like a long human life. And If you think about it, of course, the challenges that we're facing in the future, future generations or challenges will will face, are things which will go on decades and centuries, even longer into the future. As you mentioned there, nuclear waste, a classic example, the carbon we pump into the sky, you know, can be there for 500 years or more. So we need this very long time horizons, but it's hard to think on that kind of scale. But one of the ways I think about this is, if you think about how many people are alive today, there are 7.7 billion of us. Now, over the past 50,000 years, an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died. But over the next 50,000 years, nearly 7 trillion people will be born, assuming this century's birth rate levels off and stabilizes. And so that far outweighs everyone who's ever lived and died in the last 50,000 years. And in the next two centuries alone, 
tens of billions of people will be born. And amongst them are all your grandchildren and their grandchildren and the friends and communities on whom they'll depend. So certainly when I think about this, I picture in my mind's eye those billions and billions of people in the future and ask, I'm asking myself, well, how are they going to judge me for the decisions I made or did not make knowing what we do about the, the pressures on planetary boundaries, the pressures on soil and ocean acidification and so on. And to me, that really raises the question of, well, how can we be good ancestors? And that phrase, the good ancestor, is not mine. No, I first found it in the writings of Jonas Salk, who back in 1955 discovered or developed the first polio vaccine. And he believed that if we were going to tackle the great challenges of our age, the destruction of the natural world, the nuclear threat, and so on, that we would need to extend our time horizon. So instead of thinking on a scale of seconds, minutes, and hours, we need to think on a scale of decades, centuries, and millennia. That is our civilizational challenge. And certainly what I think, I don't know if you agree with this, Eric, but what I found in the ecological movement, sustainability movement more broadly, is a very strong concern with expanding our sense of place, our sense of a bigger here. So a sense of here that is bigger than you know, our own family or village or town are here that is as big as the planet itself, but without so much thinking explicitly about the need to extend time horizons, a sense of a longer now, as well as a bigger here. And I certainly believe that, you know, you can have all the SDGs or all the fine targets you want for sustainable living, but if we're locked into short-termism in our political systems, uh, in the way the media works and in other areas, then we're not going to have much chance. We need urgently to start thinking about how we're going to expand our time horizons and use that ability that we have wired into us to turn on our acorn brains. We have this capacity to kind of dance across time horizons, to think at one moment on the scale of seconds, but then we can suddenly think about planting an oak tree in the garden. Well, I mean, this is something that has deviled me for a long time because one of my professions is ecological design and, and ecosystem restoration. And that's time, you know, dependent. Um, and I, I really appreciate that 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 distinction between uh, you know NGOs trying to sort of like scale outwards, you know, the the the, foot, the physical or geographic footprint of their of their good work, um, while still being almost blind to the time factor. Or certainly not questioning it as 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 strongly. It may show up in rhetoric, uh, but you don't see it really showing up in strategy so often. Um, what, what you grew up in Australia, right? Yeah, that's right. And how old were you when you left there? I left there when I was fourteen years old, and then I lived in Hong Kong for four or five years, and I've been in the UK ever since. But I've also lived in Guatemala and the US and in Spain too. So the so the um, the presence of such an ancient set of cultures um, in Australia, uh, you know, pre-colonization. Um, well, that, yeah. did that did that have any kind of impact on your sense of time and and, and ancestoring? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. In fact, it did. I mean, one of the ways I think about our relationship with the future is the idea that, in a way, a metaphor that we have colonized the future. We treat it like a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological degradation and technological risk 
as if there was nobody there. And it's a little bit like the way that when Britain colonized Australia in the 18th and 19th century, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius, nobody's land. They treated Australia, the continent, as if there were no indigenous people there. Of course there were. And I think that today we see the future almost as tempus nullius, nobody's time, a similarly uninhabited place. And you know, those future generations have no political rights or representation. They have no influence, not just in politics, but in the marketplace. And I definitely think that my Australian upbringing made me think a lot about that colonial metaphor. And in a sense, I see that we are engaged in a kind of an anti-colonial struggle for intergenerational justice. Uh, one that I think is not so much about taking up arms as, as, as it was in the 20th century, like in Algeria against the French, where, where those were national liberation struggles, but the intergenerational liberation struggles are going to be, is a battle really of ideas about paradigm change around long-term thinking. But I think the other way that my Australian upbringing really influenced me, which you allude to in your question, which is about our connection with a deep, a deeper sense of time and longer time cycles with a longer ecological choreography of the planet, which I believe we've lost touch with. I mean, if you think about it, of course, the idea of deep time is really essential to, I think, all regenerative and long-term endeavors to recognize that humankind, our 200,000 years on the planet is just an eye blink in the cosmic story. You know, if the, if the age of the earth is the distance from the tip of your nose to your outstretched hand, you know, one stroke of a, nail, of a nail file on your middle finger erases human history. And I think if you can grasp that sense of us as a, just a moment in the cosmic story, you can start asking yourself questions like, well, who are we to break the cycle of life with our devastating ecological degradation and the technological damage that we impose on the world and future generations? Um, so I think that sense of time is really important. And of course, that cycle thinking about cycles of time, of course, many indigenous cultures have stronger connections with cyclical time about living in terms or in relation to seasons and lunar calendars, which you can find in Bali, uh, you can find them in operation in, in Guatemala amongst indigenous Mayan people. Now we have cycles too. We've got the tax cycle, the fiscal cycle, the seven day week, all these artificial cycles we've imposed um, on the world in which we live by. And I think by understanding our relationship with time, we can start rethinking um, how we connect with it and get in touch with a longer sense of time with those longer cycles, the carbon cycle, 5,000, 10,000, ten, tens of thousands of years. That's where we need to connect. And that's, uh, that should be central to, to regenerative land treatment. Uh, if, if the carbon cycle doesn't kind of ring bells for folks, then uh, they've maybe got a bit more studying to do. Um, you mentioned also that you've been working with, it, seem, it, it seems like this is a direct connection. You, you, you've mentioned that, that you work with the Long Now uh, Foundation. Yeah, absolutely. California, I believe it is. That's right. The Long Now Foundation was set up in the 1990s to try and expand our time horizons and it was named after a concept from the musician Brian Eno, where he talked about, well, we live in a short now culture of seconds and minutes. We need a longer now culture if we're going to take responsibility for people and planet 10,000 generations or more into the future. And they've got 
uh, many projects which they're engaged in. Probably the best known is the 10,000 year clock, which is a slow time clock being built as we speak inside a limestone mountain in the Texas desert. And this clock is designed to stay accurate for 10 millennia. And you'll be able to visit it by hiking through uh, across the desert for a couple of days. And then you'll walk up steps to the clock, cut into the mountainside. Each of those steps represents a million years of geological time. And you'll be able to go and, in, in a sense, almost worship, like might, might say at a secular altarpiece, this gigantic clock. And of course, it's a way of trying to connect us with that sense of deep time that we've just been discussing. But there are a lot of other great artistic projects, I think, which do that. So for example, the Scottish artist, Katie Patterson, has a 100-year art project called Future Library. And this is a library where every year for 100 years, a famous writer is donating a book which will remain completely unread and secret in the Future Library. And then in the year 2114, the 100 books will be printed on paper made from a thousand trees which have been planted in a forest outside Oslo. And the first person to donate a book was um, the Canadian writer Margaret Atwood and many other famous writers have donated since. But if you think about it, Margaret Atwood is never going to meet any of the readers, never going to see that book published in her own lifetime. It's an incredible legacy gift to the future. And I'm very much inspired by these kind of legacy infused projects which have that kind of vision. Um, you know, for example, the Greenbelt Movement in Kenya, which began in uh, 1977 um, with Wangari Matai, you know, the first African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, and that project was all about um, regenerating the land, planting trees, but also empowering women um, in agroforestry skills. And in the last, you know, since it was founded in 1977, tens of thousands of women have been trained up in agroforestry skills in Kenya and beyond where it was based. Um, and they're still working with more than three or 4,000 communities across Africa. And of course, tens of millions of trees have been planted as well. And that really is about legacy, about doing things which stretch way beyond your own lifetime. There's something about that that, that triggers the imagination in a way that's very compelling, I think, for people to join in. And it, it, I've noticed, you know, over, over my career that it's often the things that are audaciously, um, you know, inventive or audaciously, uh, you know, challenging uh, ability of, of masses of people or, or many years of effort that actually succeed in capturing enough imagination to build up the requisite amount of, of energy and resources to actually start to implement them. So while I think on the one hand, it's, it's, it's common enough for people to have some sort of an instinct to sort of simplify things to what, what they um, believe is achievable and, and achievable is a stand-in word for a lot of things, uh, many of which actually dampen down enthusiasm or ambition. Um, but what, what I've noticed really, really catches um, attention and, and support are these more audacious uh, ideas such as a green belt across Africa, you know? Um, who wouldn't want to be part of that? But I think what's really interesting about that, I think you're right that the, the working with the imagination um, and sort of almost embarking on crazy, what might seem like crazy projects um, is really uh, important because 
this is about the imagination. This is about stretching beyond what consumer culture is telling us is the way to live, living within the boundary of the consumer hyper-individualist ego, stretching our time horizons forward decades and centuries. But at the same time, I think one can be imaginative and pragmatic. Let me just give you an example. I mean, one of the things that, one of the reasons really I wrote this book, The Good Ancestor, was to say something about politics, to recognize that our democratic systems um, are myopic. They are incredibly short-termist, um, whether that's in deeply democratic countries like in, you know, in the Netherlands or in Iceland or wherever it is, or, or in other countries as well, Britain, where maybe democracy is uh, under pressure uh, in somewhere like the UK or on, in Hungary. But all of them share something in common, which is that future generations don't have a, a place in the political system. But in Japan, there's this wonderful movement called Future Design. And what they do is it's a form of community political decision-making. And they're directly inspired by the Native American idea of seventh generation decision-making. And they invite local citizens to draw up plans and discuss plans for the towns and cities where they live. And in doing so, they divide them into two groups. Half of them are told that they are residents from the present day. And the other half are given these almost ceremonial colorful robes to wear and told to imagine themselves as residents from 2060. So the clothing is part of taking them on an imaginative journey. And it turns out that the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative city plans, whether it's healthcare investment or climate change action. And this movement, Future Design, is now spread from small towns to major cities like Kyoto. So I think there's, <coughs> excuse me, a real opportunity to reinvent what political decision-making looks like, particularly at the grassroots, but using the tools of the imagination, in this case, a, a ceremonial robe. Sometimes they wear a little hat that says homo futurus on it, but even little small kind of cultural tweaks like that, or little imaginative games almost, can help switch on that acorn part of our minds, of our brains. So I think we need to be pragmatic on one level, but highly imaginative on the other. And that that um, that cry, that call for more imagination—that's something I've, I, I believe you you have been in contact with, if 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 not um, more in conversation with Rob Hopkins in the UK. Absolutely, I'm a huge fan of Rob Hopkins. I know he's been on your podcast, and um, you know Rob is what Rob recognizes. I think which is so important is that creating visions of the future. Um, is so important as a motivating force. It always has been. That's why religions have painted visions of paradise. That's why Marx painted a vision of a worker's paradise. And trying to, um, I think, visually um, picture what that future might look like is really important because humankind needs a, what the ancient Greeks called a telos, a goal, something outside yourself to aim at that Existential psychotherapist Viktor Frankl realized this on the individual level. If you want a meaningful life, you have to aim for something bigger than yourself, whether it's finding a cure for cancer if you're a, a scientist or keeping your family business going. But I think at a species level, we need to think about, well, what are we actually trying to do here? What's our big goal, our big ambition, our big vision? Now, you've got people like Elon Musk who comes along and says, well, the big vision is really we're going to escape this planet. We're going to get to Mars. That's what it's all about. Um, I'm absolutely not in agreement with that and believe that, and I imagine you believe this too, Eric, that 
the real aim, if we're going to have an aim as a species, is about living within the means of the one and only planet we know that sustains life. And certainly for me, I'm a latecomer to this idea, which is really the way I see it. You know, one of the fundamental ideas, for example, of ecological economics, as it emerged in the 1970s with writers like Herman Daly. I studied economics 30 years ago, but I never came across the idea of ecological economics, the idea of really putting a giant circle called the planet or the environment around um, a demand and supply diagram or a circular flow of income diagram to realize that we, if we really are serious about the long term, a deep meaning of sustainability, as Herman Daly pointed out, we would need to, and we need to, you know, not be using resources faster than they can be naturally regenerated, not creating waste faster than they can be absorbed. You know, that's about thriving in balance, as the economist Kate Rayworth says, you know, not about constant GDP growth. But all of this, to get back to the point, I guess, is to recognize that we need to have these visions of the future to, and as Rob Hopkins says, to try and um, create a picture in our minds of what we are aiming at as a goal, as what the Greeks called a telos. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M I N D A N D. M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where we are speaking today with Roman Krisnarek, author of The Good Ancestor. We're talking about the place of long-term thinking as opposed to short-term immediacy in the regenerative movement in general and in terms of intergenerational equity. It seems to me that that combination of, of um, helping to uh, call forth, because I don't think it's something that, had, that can be instilled, uh, empathy. Um, I, I think it's, it's built in, it's part, of, it's part of the hardware, but sometimes it needs permission to come out again. But to, to, to calling forth the empathy and, and focusing that on, through that imaginative process, on what's it going to be like to be a hundred years, two hundred, five hundred thousand years into the future, and what kind of world do you want to be having? Do you want to be able to go and um, dip your cup into the river and drink it without worry? Um, right, absolutely. And, you know, and, do you, know, you want to be able to sit under a tree and eat what falls? Um, that that sort of thing, or do you want to have this kind of you know dystopian future where you're you're shedding blood and living short brutal lives, uh, you know, scrabbling over bits of industrial salvage? Um, you know, that's that's the that's the domain of empathy. Well, um, really, yeah, that's right. But I do believe that although empathy is wired into us, it's also something you can learn, like riding a bike. It's a skill too. Um, the question is how to do it, particularly when, you know, the idea of co what's called cognitive empathy or perspective taking empathy 
being able to imagine another person's perspective is very difficult when you can't meet those people because they're going to be around 200 years from now. <clears throat> Excuse me. So how do we do this? Well, again, I think we can use imaginative exercises. One of the things I like to do is I imagine one of my kids, I've got 11 year old twins, so I might imagine my daughter and I then try, I picture her face with my eyes shut. And then I imagine 30 years into the future and try and picture what is she thinking about? What are her joys? What are her struggles? And then I try to imagine her at her 90th birthday party, surrounded by family and friends and loved ones and neighbors and old work colleagues. And I look into my daughter's sort of wrinkled, aged face. I go and look out the window and have a look at that world out there that she is facing. And then I imagine someone coming across to her and putting a tiny baby into her arms. And it's her first great grandchild. And she looks down at the baby and into its eyes and asks herself, well, what would this baby need to survive and thrive for the years and decades ahead? And when I do that kind of imaginative thought experiment, I recognize that little baby could be alive well into the 22nd century. So that child is not in a world of science fiction. It's an intimate family fact, just a couple of steps away from my own life. And certainly, again, when I do that kind of imagining, what I realize is that baby is not alone. It's part of a web of human relationships and community, but it's also part of the web of the living world. You know, the air it breathes, the water it drinks, the food that it eats. And so if I care about leaving a legacy for, you know, that, you know, that, that child who's part of my own bloodline, I need to think about leaving a legacy for what might call the universal strangers of the future, something much bigger for people and planet that I will never encounter in my life. And I think this is one of the ways that we use the idea of a family legacy, familial legacy as an empathic bridge to a much sort of broader, inclusive sense of legacy, a more transcendent sense of legacy. Do you reckon that that, that kind of imaginative exercise also helps to trigger some of the same satisfaction pathways that people attempt to, to fulfill by clicking buy now? That's a very interesting question. My instinctive answer is that it taps into something a bit different. It taps into something which is equally a driver of human beings as dopamine, and that is the fact that we are social animals. We are wired for empathy, cooperation, and mutual aid. And you can have as many luxury meals yourself sitting at a table alone, but in the end, you'll want someone to be there with you. You know, Aristotle talked about us being as gregarious as bees. You know, we are social. Um, and the thing about intergenerational thinking is that we can also be social in a kind of way with our future generations and with past generations. Again, if we use our imaginations, I once went to this amazing talk by a, uh, an, a Maori activist from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And she was talking about how there in the room as she was speaking were the living, the unborn and the dead all together. And she was drawing on a Maori concept called whakapapa, which is spelled with a WH, whakapapa, which is the Maori word for lineage or genealogy. And the idea that we are all part of a great chain of life stretching long into the past and far into the future. It so happens that the light is shining right here, right now. And our task is to widen it more broadly. And of course, this is an idea you find in the Native American idea of seventh generation decision-making you find in amongst Iroquois people, Dakota people. I found out the other day that in the Moluccas Islands in um, Indonesia, they also have an idea of seventh generation decision-making going seven generations back and forward in village council decision-making. I don't think that's tapping into 
dopamine. I think it's tapping into something a bit deeper about um, our relational natures, that we are not just caught within the limitations of our own skin, but we are bigger in space and bigger in time. Is this something you bring into your, your work? Do you do uh, workshops or, or training ever with groups of people to help them kind of make this bridge? Yeah, I do, actually. And, you know, I, I almost always take them, if I have time in a workshop, on some kind of imaginative journey, imagining their grandchildren or young people they know living long into the future and use that as a bridge um, for thinking about sometimes the more uh, urgent or the more immediate issues of politics or economic transformation. So recently I was giving a briefing to British members of parliament um, about my book. And again, I, I talked to them about the legacies that they might leave. And whether they were from the left or the right, they both got this idea of wanting to be remembered well by future generations. They might have different visions of exactly how to do that, but they got that idea on some level, even though, of course, they're trapped in short-term cycles and, 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 and wanting to look good in the opinion polls and, and not do a bad tweet or do a great tweet and that kind of thing. Um, and that thinking about legacy I use in workshops is then a jumping off point for talking about things. In the case with these British parliamentarians, I was talking about the importance of Britain um, adopting the Welsh model in Wales, they, as you may know, they have a future generations commissioner um, whose job it is, is to look at the impact of legislation about 30 years ahead from day, today, whether it's in environmental or, or educational transport fields. And there's a campaign now for the whole UK to have a future generations commissioner. And I understand that the Netherlands has a, uh, a movement to have a, a future generations ombudsman. There's already an, an unofficial ombudsman. And in the US, um, they're going down a, a different route, which I think is really fascinating, a more legal route. So there's an organization which I think is very important called Our Children's Trust, which is a public interest law firm. And they have brought a landmark case against the federal government, the US government, on behalf of 21 young people campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. So the idea of giving rights to future generations is you know, it's one of the most important shifts in the nature of human rights since the French Revolution, I think. I don't think I'm exaggerating that either. Um, and their work has then um, inspired legal cases in the Netherlands, in Colombia, in Uganda, and in fact, about 20 other countries. And I think this is all part of the process. And certainly, so when I am, you know, running workshops, I'm encouraging people to use their acorn brains to think about legacy, but also trying to let them realize that we need to get involved in collective struggles, whether it's in the legal sphere, the political sphere, and of course, in the economic sphere too, with regenerative uh, economic practices, if we're going to create a truly long now civilization. You, you, you've mentioned legacy a few times as, as like a trigger, you know, for, for thinking or, or behavior. But I think you also made a case for, for a distinction between legacy and a more universal kind of future casting? Am I, yeah. Am I right about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I certainly distinguish three different kinds of legacy. So there's a, an egotistical form of legacy, like a, a Russian oligarch who wants to have a, a, a football stadium named after them. That's how they're going to keep the fire of their own life burning beyond death. So that's a, a, 
an egotistical form. Then there is a more familial form, like a lot of us, we want to pass on things to our children, our home, or pass on religion or culture and traditions. But then there is that more transcendent sense of, of legacy of trying to leave something for those universal strangers of the future. But all of that, I think, is very different from the professional forecasting industry, where they're very much focused on um, you know, making predictions about the future, uh, what, how AI is going to affect us or automation and so on. And of course, we need to be looking to the future. We need a certain amount of forecasting. But I think what we need is what I call holistic forecasting, which is to try and look at the long-term pathway for human civilization itself. This is the big stuff. You know, we know that all civilizations are born, they flower, and they die. That's what happened to the Roman Empire. That's what happens to the Mayans. And that is what's going to happen to us as well, unless we get off our degenerative pathway onto more regenerative pathways. And, you know, at the moment, we're not doing that. I think broadly, you know, we are on a kind of reformist pathway where we are slowing down the rate of our civilizational collapse. Um, but of course, you know, there are areas of hope. You know, your podcast wouldn't exist unless there was a growing regenerative culture and long-term culture. People who I think of as time rebels dedicated to the struggles of intergenerational justice and, you know, living within the limitations of spaceship Earth. So I do see kind of hope around us, but we certainly need to not put our heads in the sand about thinking about the, the long-term trajectory of our civilization, that holistic forecasting mentality. That holistic forecasting, it, it seems to me that at some place um, it meets up with the fruits of good backcasting. Yes, absolutely. Because good backcasting requires picturing the world that you want to create and then working backwards from that. And that's why I believe it's so fundamental to think about the goals of our civilization itself and to switch what those goals are. Of course, as we know that the de facto goal of most governments since the end of the Second World War has been GDP growth, material um, advancement, material progress. And whether they are neoliberal or Keynesian or Marxist, governments have all been pursuing pretty much the same agenda. And so we need to switch that from that short-term, ultra-short-term goal of you know, GDP growth obsession to uh, longer-term goals of, of regenerative economies, for example, and also regenerative politics. And you know, that's why people like Steven Pinker slightly drive me crazy, because he's one of those people who absolutely believes in the cult of progress, that we can keep blowing up the balloon bigger and bigger without any prospect that it's ever going to pop. But even my kids know that even when they were three years old, they knew the balloon would pop at some point. So unless we learn to thrive in balance, balance, there is no sense in which we can have a truly long-term future. And that really is, in a sense, the essence of good backcasting, to give ourselves that larger goal um, of living within planetary boundaries and then working out what we need to do to get there. Well, I think, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the things that, that perversely gives me hope um, is the understanding that human beings are incredibly obsessive creatures. <laughs> and if we can get the majority to obsess about something really constructive and positive, 
you know, they'll, they'll pick it up like a dog with a bone and, 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 and really go for it. And it, we're also suggestible. Um, we, we're this great mix of things, obviously, but, but we're very suggestible. Otherwise, the advertising industry wouldn't have had such a, such a long roll um, of uh, qualified success. And then you've got this GDP obsession, which strikes me as falling in love with the wrong kind of indicators. <laughs> yes. Right. And then we don't question them. We've just taken them on whole hog as, as indicators of, of doing it right, of doing, of doing success. Yes. See, things are still growing. Uh, we still have, you know, so many more of, uh, you know, billions a year of, of trade going on and so many new startups and so many more uh, houses being built, et cetera. But it's an indicator and it's an indicator which may have had a short-term accuracy for some things that were being attempted, but it, it, it's way out of date, it's way out of sync. Um, and we really need to be talking about what are the indications we're getting there towards some sort of a repaired, regenerative, abundant, thrivable future. Well, absolutely. And I mean, the good news, of course, is that there are cities and some countries which are weaning themselves off that GDP, uh, those GDP figures which have dominated since, you know, Simon Kuznets invented GDP as, as an indicator in the 1930s. So, you know, you've got cities like Amsterdam, which have adopted Kate Rayworth's donor economics model and, and other countries, you know, very engaged in circular economy thinking and so on. But I think your point about um, that kind of tripartite uh, grouping of obsession, hab uh, obs well, obsession, um, suggestibility, and I'd add habit to that, which I think is very similar, um, is really important here. You know, human beings get used to stuff really, really quickly. You know, when you know Londoners were completely opposed to having a congestion charge for driving a car into the city, but as soon as it was imposed, well, after a few weeks, everybody got used to it, right? And and you know, the the great sociologist Max Weber talked about the importance of habit as a human trait, a human behavioral trait. And I think we need to tap into those things um, as well as our obsessive nature. And the susceptibility is really fundamental too. So in my book, I talk a lot about, particularly at the end, about how do we create a culture of long-termism? And there I discuss the importance of religion, for example. You know, religions have been incredibly good at inculcating new values in society. And I think one of the things, well, and of course, some religions are better than others when it comes to long-term thinking and regenerative thinking. So what well, we know in, in the Catholic tradition, uh, the Pope's most recent encyclical, Laudato Si, praise be, um, talked about the idea of intergenerational solidarity. Um, and so that's a kind of a long-termism, intergenerational justice there. On the other hand, as far as I know, the Vatican Bank, I don't think has yet div divested from fossil fuels. Um, it may or may not have, but maybe we don't know because it's all secret, but there's a lot of contradictions there. So I think we need to be tapping into, you know, things like religion, things like education. And in a funny way, of course, on some level, the global ecological movement that's emerged since the 1960s and 70s is like a massive decentralized religion. Um, what they all, all ecological and environmental organizations on some level worship the same God or goddess, which is Gaia, you know, the planet. It may not be written into their mission statements, but it's there somewhere as a kind of secular um, 
kind of goddess to uh, to live by. And I think that's probably a good thing. And this is about, I guess, ultimately, this is about suggestibility and habit. It's about creating a culture where children grow up as ecological natives. You know, my kids who are uh, 11, you know, they just, you know, the idea that they might sort of want to grow up and become a management consultant or investment banker doesn't enter their minds. Or even if it does, they, they still would ask the question, well, what's the impact of this going to be on the wider world? You know, they're growing into a kind of more ecological and regenerative culture, but it's very slow, this stuff. And the question is, can we actually do it fast enough? In the, I'm going I'm to jump again. Because um, this book, it, if you're listening to this and if it's resonating with you, I really recommend you get the book. Um, don't just look at reviews online, you know, because you're curious or, or at this sort of thing. This book is, is, it's one to have on the shelf because you will be taking it down again and again and again and going back to things that you want to think about harder. It's really, really densely packed. And, and it's a little difficult for me in this interview to touch on all the things that inspired me and enthused me in, in my recent reading of that. Um, so get it, get, get three copies. In fact, get one for yourself, get one for your best friend and get one for your local library. And get um, one for your great, 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 great grandchildren yes, that haven't exactly, been born yet and exactly. stick it away in a safe. <laughs> and you may have to put an English dictionary with it, but who cares? Um, Roman, you, you mentioned also in the book about these different, uh, trajectories um, that uh, characterize our thinking of how our future could go from this point of view. Um, and then you also mentioned something really intriguing about being able to jump um, from one curve to the next. So they're kind of S curves, but some are more acute, you know, maybe more like N's maybe or upside down V's or whatever. But you mentioned that there's a technological kind of like future. Uh, there's a almost uh, totalitarian, authoritarian future, and there's um, a more ecological, regenerative possibility. Could you just maybe touch on that idea for a couple minutes? Yeah, certainly. I think that, you know, we're certainly on a, tra a, a trajectory towards collapse faster or slower. And, you know, I mean, you can read Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, uh, on this or many other uh, you know, great pieces of research and writing about it. But then the question is, okay, if we're going to jump onto a more a transformative vision, a different kind of civilizational pathway, well, what could it look like? Well, there are a few options around. I mean, the one that's still most prevalent is that Steven Pinker kind of idea of perpetual progress of just staying on the growth curve and crossing your fingers, hoping that technology will sort out all of our problems for us and growth will sort out all of our problems. But I think we know from the great acceleration and all the research on planetary boundaries that that is an unlikely scenario. I think another option is the idea of technological liberation, that we can just run away to somewhere like Mars, the kind of Elon Musk idea. But I think that the real problem with that, I think, is that, well, partly the idea of colonizing Mars and terraforming and so on, well, it's a pretty risky business you know this is 30 million miles away a, a planet which where there's nowhere 
as hospitable on that planet as the top of Mount Everest or the bottom of Antarctica. Um, so even if we could send a few people to Mars, which we probably won't do until 2045 or something, the idea of actually creating civilization there is pretty uh, weak or pretty limited. But of course, the other problem is that if we have that attitude of running away to another planet, you know, the, the, the problem is really one of collateral damage that we will focus so much on that that we won't care about this one planet that we know. And that's a very high risk possibility. I mean, I think a, a, another kind of goal to aim at is what I think of as survival mode. And this is part of the deep adaptation movement, the idea that, oh, it's too late to transform our society, to switch to a renewable, regenerative future. We just have to sort of bunker down, pull up the drawbridge, take out the gun um, and, and get ready for Armageddon. Um, now, there are different versions of that. Some of them are about going hiding away in your hill, uh, on the top of a hill with your gun. You know, others about, well, we need to prepare for disasters like, you know, flooding that's going to come to Shanghai and Bangladesh and New York and wherever. And I think that's realistic. But on the other hand, I'm not a believer that we are facing inevitable civilizational collapse. I don't think there's nothing in, in, is inevitable in history until it happens. Um, human beings are actually pretty good in a crisis when you look back through human history. I mean, just think of small examples like, you know, after 9-11, the way that people responded to that crisis on the ground, people from different backgrounds, creating soup kitchens, providing accommodation for people. We, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, the same. And of course, during COVID-19, we've had communities kind of rising in many ways faster and more effectively than governments to deliver food to elderly people or vulnerable people who can't go out of their homes. So I really don't buy that idea, that kind of survival mode idea. So I'm very much on for that, a goal of what I think of as one planet thriving of you know, meeting the needs of all current and future people within the means of this one and only uh, flourishing planet that we have. But of course, that is an incredibly tall order because how do you wean governments off the addiction to economic growth? How do you change political systems that we've had since the 18th and 19th century, which are locked into short-term electoral cycles and corporate funding and that kind of thing? And that's why a lot of the work I've been doing actually recently has been particularly around the political realm about meeting with government officials, um, trying to support movements for change, which are about trying to stretch out long-term decision-making to inject politics with the sort of DNA of intergenerational justice. But this is a really big struggle. But, you know, I don't think it is enough to just be, you know, engaged in something really worthy and important like rewilding, for example, unless at the same time, you are part of, or there are, there are people engaged on trying to engage in trying to challenge the short-termism built into our political systems and into culture and education and so on. I, I, that's something that gives me hope and, and has for many years, but I'm also very aware. Well, first I'll fill in the blank on the hope. Um, almost any place you look, you will find well-informed, dedicated, passionate people working to change it in a good direction. Almost every aspect of our lives has these people um, who are committed to, you know, they can, they can see where it would better go and they're committed to, to working to that end. So that does give me a lot, a lot of hope and has for a long time, but we do have this clicking talk, <laughs> ticking clock. Yeah. Um, 
with climate change, with the rise of authoritarianism, with the uh, social kind of erosion happening, especially as uh, exacerbated by things like social media and um, you know the siloing of ideas. So we're working kind of against the tide on on that on that front also. It's um, that's one of the reasons that when you described it, the different trajectories. I really kind of sat up and, and, and paid a lot of attention to that because you brought in this concept of being able to jump from one to the other instead of necessarily riding it all the way back down. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, but of course, we can jump in different directions or, you know, there are disruptions in society. For example, the Fridays for the Future movement or blockchain or whatever it happens to be. But those d disruptions can be captured by the old system to prolong its life or be uh, adopted or encouraged by transformative movements. So, you know, like with Fridays for the Future, you know, you can have, you know, a politician can bring a, a, an activist kid onto the platform uh, in order to make themselves look good and in a sense, prolong that old system. And what's really important is that there isn't this kind of capture of movements. So, you know, the way that Fridays for Future in the UK and other places has teamed up with radical movements like Extinction Rebellion, I think is a good thing because it helps to um, ensure that, you know, disruptions are not co-opted, they are not captured, so that we can do that very thing of jumping on to those man more transformative pathways. And something I think is really fundamental here is that, uh, when it, especially when thinking about hope, is you, you can look around at the world and think, oh my God, it's hopeless. Look at all those fossil fuel companies, which are still so dominant. Look at the rise of far-right populism. Uh, look at the, the dominance of consumer culture. There is no hope. But something I learned really uh, importantly a few years ago is I read about how in the 18th century, some of the great political thinkers of the time and economists like Adam Smith didn't even realize that there was an industrial revolution going on, even though they were right in the middle of it. They couldn't see it. And I kind of think that's where we might be now, that although we might see the domination of all of these um, old style, Holocene style um, institutions and, and corporations and so on, there's actually, although it's fragmented and contingent, a regenerative long-term um, movement emerging it is quite hard to see but like adam smith and the industrial revolution it might actually be there we may only really be able to see it in retrospect they were on a shift as big as the shift from feudalism to industrialization but it's hard to really picture it all and bring it all together in one spot and that's why this book is important um we're about at the end of our our time for this conversation are there points we've missed or is there something um, additional you would like to leave with the listeners? Well, I'd lead, like to leave with it almost a word of warning, something we haven't talked about just very briefly is the idea of cathedral thinking, the idea of embarking on projects with long time horizons, decades, centuries into the future. Anybody who runs a woodland is a cathedral thinker planting years ahead. That's how the great, you know, yeah, like, like the, the Ulminster in Germany was, begun in 1377 and wasn't finished for 500 years. But the warning I'd say is that cathedral thinking isn't always good for us. A former head of Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. So we have to watch out for long-termism. We've got to make sure it is directed towards 
intergenerational justice and planetary living and is not just about achieving very narrow profit-oriented goals, individualistic goals, egoistic goals. It needs to be about something much more universal and transcendent. Okay. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, I uh, invite you to come and speak or run a workshop. Um, you're traveling internationally and, and you're available through your website. Is that the best way to reach you? Yep. Just go to my website, romancrisnaric.com, if you can spell it or write to me on Twitter. And um, I will travel to you wherever you are from my lovely little garden office in Oxford in England. And I will post uh, the relevant links um, below this uh, podcast once we publish. So thank you very much for making the time, especially on short notice. And um, we have much more to talk about. I hope we can, we can get around to that in a future time. Well, it's been hugely energizing and interesting. And I love conversations where I say things I haven't said before, which is certainly the case as what just happened now. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, take care. You too. Bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.